Hello, my name is Dr. Wendy Slusser, and here at Semmel Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA, we strive to be trailblazers in building a culture of health and well-being. Starting in our own backyard, Semmel HCI transforms ideas into reality to create a campus-wide culture of health by promoting physical, emotional, and social well-being. Welcome to our center's podcast, Live Well. Join us as we interview leading experts and discover new perspectives on health and well-being. Each episode, we will bring to you scientists and world-class operators who will share with you cutting-edge research and practices and never-before-broadcasted tips to live a more healthful life for yourself, community, and our planet. Some of us may go to the park to exercise, some to picnic, some to find a quiet place to relax. We all experience and use public spaces like parks in different ways. How do we create public spaces that are designed to meet diverse needs? What are the cultural determinants of design? Join me as I chat with Professor of Urban Planning in UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs, Dr. Anastasia Lukatu Sideras, about how to create equitable public spaces for everyone. You know, it's such a pleasure and thank you so much for participating in this interview. Yeah. What strikes me about your focus is this user focus. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Your, you know, your research on built environment is user focus. And for many people outside of the field, we don't know what that really means. Sure. Yeah. Yes. I'd love to have you explain to me what that, what is that? Absolutely. So we all are living in cities and we use cities amenities and city services. But what I have found in you know, all these years of work in this area of, I started as an architect, an urban planner, urban design is really looking into larger scale built environment, not only your, your house, but the neighborhood, the region, is that oftentimes professionals, urban planners, urban designers, really plan and design having the idea that we are all the same and what I call the idea of the average user, that we all share the same needs, the same wishes about the cities. A lot of the professionals, and it is easier thing to do, they kind of uh, purport the idea of, you know, we have everybody has the same needs that are universal needs. And this is extremely wrong and it has consequences. I can give you some examples. And yes, I have been doing a lot of work over the years on parks and open spaces. We have medical literature that says that parks really contribute to health, uh, contribute to recreation. And biophilia. It is, absolutely. Um, they contribute to socializing, extremely important. And I would visit parks in different communities, sometimes um, ethnic communities. They would be completely empty. And I remember once striking a conversation in Monterey Park, which is a very Asian, has high concentrations of Asian Americans. And I found some people doing Tai Chi in the park in the morning. And I said, why don't I cannot find any Asian Americans in the park? He said, you know, what you call, what in the U.S. is called a park doesn't really fulfill our needs. We really want to see opportunities for gardening. We want to see the park as an aesthetic place with flowers and etc. And and this was repeated over and over and over again in different communities. You would see that people based on their cultural characteristics 
wanted different things. They did not want to have the diamonds and baseball fields that you find often in American parks. Of course, these were very valuable in other parts of the city. I would visit Latino communities that were no soccer fields. So if you start thinking of the city as a collection of different groups that have different needs and aspirations. So a lot of my work is trying to find what are the cultural determinants of design and using culture in its broader sense, not only ethnicity and race, but for example, I'm looking into women's mobility and how oftentimes women are less likely to bike, are less likely to use public transportation if they have cars because they're much more fearful of being attacked or harassed Mm -hmm. in public. This means that their user needs are not well responded to by transportation agencies that equate everyone as the average user. Do you find that women across all racial and ethnic groups find that? Absolutely. And actually, we have a study going on right now which is a global study. We have 18 cities that are are included and we're focusing on college students. And we did actually a survey at UCLA and there are 18 cities in in five continents that we're asking both male and female students about their experiences in um, mobility experiences and especially in transit settings. And you find in every city, it is a global phenomenon that women are much more fearful of using public transit. They are harassed much more. And we're talking about sexual harassment, about obscene language, about groping, about all these comments. Men are also harassed. I mean, one of the surprising things is that you do find that a certain amount of men also have bad experiences. A lot of LGBTQI individuals have, but you know, women is, it is almost, I would say, universal. Uh, wow. And what countries other than the United States are you So in? in the United States, we have Los Angeles and San Jose here that I'm kind of leading these two studies. And then we have, in Europe, we have Stockholm, we have Milan, we have London, we have Paris, we have Melbourne in Australia, we have Lagos in Nigeria, we have Shenzhen in China, Tokyo, in uh, Japan, oh, that's there are 18 cities. That's amazing. It's a real mm-hmm. cross-section of different backgrounds, but you're finding a similar finding and, and we, among we the gender. gave the same survey that people are distributing to their colleges, mm. and we find that this is pretty, <laughs> pretty universal. So how do you address that difference in gender? So there are a number of things that, you know, can happen. Uh, first of all, A lot of the fear happens while women are waiting for the bus. And so real-time information about when the bus comes and goes, so you can get on your app that, you know, the bus is going to come in five minutes, then you don't need to be waiting 20, 25 minutes at the bus stop, right? Uh Um, Also, uh, sometimes, especially women, this fear, as you can imagine, is higher during nighttime. So uh, request stop programs where if your bus comes closer to where you want to go, why does it need to stop at the bus stop, which may be half a mile away, and then you have to walk in the night? Uh-huh. I mean, there are a number of a number of policies wow. that could, um, That's incredible. could help. So practical. But, 
but but I you know I I, I was on, on a panel some years ago that had the CEOs of transportation companies and big uh, transit operators, and I was saying, well, we really have to look into the universal needs. Everybody is the same, and I was saying, no, they are not the same. Uh, you really have to look into some of these uh, particularities. Just another example, looking into older adults and mobility and. Yes. And that a lot of your work is in older adults. The last three years, yes. yeah. Because as you know better than I do, it's the fastest growing segment of the population. That's right. Actually, I heard two days ago on public radio that in Los Angeles, it's the only growing segment of the huh. population, people over 65. Wow. Which is amazing. But then you go, so we did a lot of work with older adults in the inner city who are more low income. And walking is extremely important for them. Some of them don't have cars or some some of them cannot drive anymore. You go and you see that it is so difficult for them to walk. The sidewalks are like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, the, tree, the roots trash. are also I mean, they're afraid. More importantly, the biggest, because we took them for walks around the block and then we asked them to comment on what they see, what they like, what they don't like. And then at the end, to tell us, a little bit of, you know, what they thought about the journey. And almost all of them, the most stressful part was having to cross Pico Boulevard. It's quite a big arterial and the light turning red to them because they go slower. And also the lights are so fast. I mean, in New York City, they go for 26 seconds. Right. And right. 30 seconds. And yeah. here it's like, I'm afraid to cross Pico. Yes. I mean, Each and every of them said that they don't walk because they don't want to be in the middle of the street with the light right. turning. So what do you do as a city? I mean, if where you have these concentrations of older adults, you, you have to change the, the, light. the cycle. Yes. I mean, yeah. So, so makes sense. So, so yeah. I, I hope I, I responded to your the user focus, mainly kind of advocating and planning for planning for individual or group needs and looking into how these are different based on people's age, gender, culture, ethnicity, because people have different needs. Yeah, that was very, very insightful. What's interesting to me is I could see how like a system or a service could respond to different needs of different groups. But how does it work when you're working on like a park or something that's more mm-hmm. built? Because yeah. we see changes in communities over time. And so how so do you the, create flexibility? Right, right. And, and and so there are, you're right, there are certain things in a park that are pretty rigid, but there are other things that can be changed. But also another part of the park is its programming. Mm-hmm. And programming can always change. That's right. So... If, you know, you have people that want to have Tai Chi in the park and Tai Chi lessons or yoga classes in the park, or if you have a lot of young kids that want to do woodcrafting or fly kites, or right. I mean, you can address a number of these things through programming yeah. that it is as important as the brick and mortar parts of the park. Mm-hmm. Or you can also dedicate certain parts of the park for gardening. If you have a park, right. you know, that is oftentimes we're quite blessed with parks that are relatively big, you know, multi-acre parks. But you go to parks like Southgate and, you know, they have a golf course. I haven't been there for years, so this may have changed. But there was a golf course from the 1920s that was always locked because nobody was using it. 
I mean, you can think of how to, right, to transform it. transform some of these wow. so that people are more incentivized to use these city services that contribute to health, that make people more active, more sociable. Yeah. And you brought up biophilia, which is the love of nature and anything living. And in your work, I know in like Oliver Sacks has a great story about his own care of neurologic patients and how mm-hmm. they really, people with Alzheimer's or dementia yes. really became much more engaged when they were out in nature. And yes. even a Parkinson patient he yes. mentions got better movement when they were in a, visiting a park. Yes. And I'm wondering in your experience and how you, how do you help promote that, especially in a place like Los Angeles, where we do have per capita, not that many parks, how can we enhance what we have and build on our assets to bring that to our yeah. population. Well, I, I think that there is quite a lot of inequity in the distribution of, of parks. And so some communities have more, some communities have less. But I, what I'm more concerned and disappointed about is that we have parks that are very underutilized and they do not really reach their potential in terms of reaching communities. And I think it is a matter of design and programming. We also have wonderful ex-urban parks that a lot of people cannot reach. And so, you know, thinking about, I have been doing some work with California state parks, and they really want to diversify their users because it, it is mostly white and relatively middle-class and upper-middle-class users that use ex-urban parks. And it is a matter of transportation. I mean, how do you also trying to find partnerships with schools where the schools can provide transportation so that some of the inner-city kids can can go to the Santa Monica Mountains and have some camping experiences and enjoy and appreciate nature. There need to be multi-pronged strategies. Definitely try to identify areas that you can convert into park. And we have a study here, maybe it's this one, um, that we really looked into. We were trying to, uh, to find where it is the biggest need for parks for older adults based on their concentrations. We created a needs index. And then from the supply side, we tried to find where are vacant sites that are owned by the public sector. And we found quite a few. And then you put the one and the other together and you find the best places to create these parks. And in some cases, you don't need necessarily to have, you know, parks that are over an acre, a kind of a smaller park that can become a kind of a public outdoor room for the community. So we have been quite instrumental to develop the first older adult senior-friendly park in Los Angeles. It is oh. It just broke ground Where? in Westlake. Oh. And it's called... Golden Age Park, <laughs> and it was based on a series of focus group with I did with my students of adults that use St. Barnabas Senior Services that is very near. And this is also near MacArthur Park, and none of these older adults would venture to MacArthur Park. Why not? Because they felt that they would be hit by a soccer ball. They, the park was not geared towards older adults. They were afraid they would be victimized and all that. And all really wished for a park that was more geared towards their needs. And I feel that, you know, in this day and age, we have to be thinking about how we're going to 
to be working with our aging population. And I'm one of those people that is aging. I think we well, all, me too. all of us are, I suppose. Um, yeah. And I want to just revisit a couple of points that you mentioned about what you, your, your observation that we have parks, but they're underutilized. And I think that's an ongoing theme that we have at Semel Healthy Campus Initiative is that you really need to be looking at your assets and mobilizing them. And it sounds Absolutely. right. And it sounds like what you're doing is exactly that. There are open spaces that are just not being utilized. And and it's sounding based on what you just said to me is that a lot of it has to do with, you know, really being reflective of the users that would be more likely to be in that community to use Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And I want to want to know in your work with older adults, have you found that they've there's some sounds like there's some common themes that would probably apply to most older adults. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking when you think that biophilia has so much positivity with people with dementia or Alzheimer's and so forth. I mean, my friend who is a chair of neurology in Portland told me 50% of people over the age of 85 will have some level of dementia. Yeah. And it's so scary, imagine, yes. but yes. imagine if we had you know, access to nature for all of those individuals, it would very possibly be much more ameliorated. Absolutely. And, you know, in Portland, the only park that I know of in the United States that is designed with people of dementia is in Portland. There is a park that is designed with people of dementia in mind based on the research about what types of... And I think we should be doing much more than that. Wow. You know, we really need to be readjusting our urban form and urban neighborhoods, having in mind people over 60, over 65, because there are so many now, and we all are going to be part of of that group. That's right. And our cities are not built for it yet, right now, for for this Yeah, so so that gets us, and we're talking about parks, which obviously enhances the well-being of everyone that is interested or is able to utilize them, or it's being developed for them and their interests. What other aspects of a city, since what is the percent of people that are going to be living in a city in the next couple of decades? Well, so we live in the urban century. So we see a continuing trend of more urban than anything else. So there are parts of the world, Japan is one of them, 80% urban. So and. The United States is in that in that trend. So cities are very important, and I think they will continue to be important. And that's why we kind of focus very much on cities in urban planning. Right. Doesn't mean that you know rural populations do not have needs. And if anything, I think there is a lack of research about needs of people who live live more in rural areas. But most people do live in cities. And right, and it's just going to get more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how do you, I guess, approach, I suppose, again, like the gender issues, there are going to be some sort of general priorities that you would want to see for anyone who's aging. Yes. So what would those priorities be? And then how do you make it more yes. user-friendly or for yeah. different aging populations? Yes. So, well, mobility is a very important aspect because, you know, uh, if you do not have mobility, you cannot access the amenities and the services that the cities provide. And mobility is something that older people start, I mean, it deteriorates for for older people. Recreation, we know, I probably, you know, Wendy, better than I do, that there are high levels of 
depression and loneliness, loneliness and isolation among older adults. Yeah. So how do you create places that that encourage more socializing? Mm-hmm. That's another one, at least for this generation of older people, that would improve as the next generation's age. But there is quite a big gap with technology mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, in ways that it, it hurts people. So, for example, we had these discussions about the use of uh, Uber or Lyft. And oh, uh-huh. most of the people that with these 81 older adults do not use it. Uh, they don't have smartphones. They have, right. or even if they do, they don't know how to really connect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and there are other things like telehealth and other services that become available, but you have to have the technology and know right. the technology. Now, I, these will change. I mean, my, my son's, we're born with a computer, so to speak. They're very efficient. And when they, or even our generation, were much better. Yes. Than, but at this point, there is also the need. And of course, and that's not something that is in my field, but caregivers. And yeah. uh, that's another important aspect. Of- that's right. Well, I'm Casey Chosewood, who runs Total Worker Health for the CDC, gave a great talk here for the Healthy Campus Network. And he said, all of us will be caregivers one day. I yeah. know. Yes. Yeah. So one last thing to add on that is also how the housing situation, how the houses are arranged within their neighborhood. So the American pattern where a lot of the population lives in the suburbs and single family homes far away from the services, from the mall where you need the car, it's not very sustainable. You have to find ways to address how people are going to get their services, how people are going to to access things that they need for everyday life. Uh, and that's why I, I said that the Amer- American built environment, to a great extent, is not age-friendly at right. this time. That's for sure. We've been talking a lot about opportunities. What are your challenges that you have found in regards to improving cities to be supportive of an aging population? So I would say that funding, you know, the kind of a mindset that let's do things as we know. And it is much more difficult oftentimes to go out and identify what are the needs. I mean, quite people, quite often I was intrigued to study parks because I was visiting parks and everything looked the same no matter what the community is. And it is much easier to have templates of plants and use them instead of kind of trying to design something that is completely different or programming or change the programming when neighborhoods change. So it requires more work from the professionals. Sometimes laws and regulations are in the way. It requires more funding and it requires a different mindset. Mm-hmm. Which, which gets me to another question, because we know climate change is going to greatly impact vulnerable communities, yes. children, the aging population, elderly, and the infirm. And we are in the midst of having to rethink cities in regards to climate change as well. How can we create twin goals where we're considering you know, improving our urban settings at the same time as improving them for 
vulnerable yeah. population? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I don't see the two goals as antithetical. And no, as I thinking, think, they're, I the think they're quite compatible. Exactly. Right. But you have to be thinking both because if you don't, you'll forget some, one Absolutely. or the other, right? Absolutely, yes. Because yes. I was thinking about what you were saying about shade in the park. Well, shade everywhere is yes. now being studied as a methodology, right? To reduce. Kind of urban forest. Yes, right. exactly. Right. Yes, and, and also, yeah, what the fact that we have what in urban planning we call hardscape, which is basically cement or asphalt, and such a big percentage of our cities is hardscape, and especially more vulnerable communities, inner city areas that have no trees. It's all cement and asphalt. And this, you know, especially in a city which is as hot as Los Angeles, it makes it impossible to walk for yeah, a good part. Yeah, it makes it even hotter. Yeah. Exactly, for a good part of, of the year. And so that is a very compatible goal because you want to make older populations and old populations walking more. But if you don't create more softscape, which is the more uh, greenery into the city, inserting more greenery into the city. That helps climate change goals, but it also helps health goals. And that's right. So, so that's very like, compatible. yeah. So, and also, of course, active transport is another form Absolutely. of, you know, reducing the single user cars. Absolutely. Uh, are not only healthy for you individually, but for yes. the climate. Yes, right? yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel that, you know, the I feel it's the same as health in general, you know, health and all, you know, the culture of health. I think we need to be thinking also a culture of equity and thinking about our vulnerable populations and how inequitable right now we've set up a system, right? You know? I, I, I can't agree more with you. And I actually... Not only myself, but almost all my colleagues, are. we have decided to focus much more on vulnerable populations because that's where most of the needs are. Yeah. yeah. And that's where if you had to give your bang for your buck, you need to go to ones that will be really responsive. Yes. And they're yeah. the, you know, I as a pediatrician, I know like with just kids, like they can be, you know, they can get healthy really quickly, but they can also get sick really quickly. Absolutely. And you have to be aware. Yes. Same with older older individuals. Absolutely. And and actually mention kids. Actually, my interests are often changed. I'm kind of uh, joking and I say maybe because I'm aging myself, I'm now looking into older populations. But when my, my sons were growing up, I was particularly interested in what attracts children to the park. And yes. so I have done some work on this. And you do find that even kids that are of the same age groups may have very different interests depending on different things, culture, of course, but also where they live. So I really looked into inner city children versus children that looks into the suburbs. And you find certain, you find a lot of commonalities, but you also find a lot of differences. And yeah. so what attracts children to the park? But the other thing I was finding, which is, I think, also a kind of a comment on our times, is that I was finding Quite significant. I looked into 100 parks, 50 in the inner city, 50 in the suburbs. And I wanted to find out why they're quite underutilized, a lot of them. And in both settings? Yes, although mostly in suburban settings were ah. underutilized. Ah. And so I went to the schools that were near the parks. And we sent a survey to the parents and the teachers, you know, administered it to, to the kids. There were one-fifth of the kids that have never set foot on the park, which I think in my mind is very 
big number. Uh, but also they were not using the park very frequently. And the number one reason was that parents did not have time to take the kids to the park and they were afraid to let the kids use the mm. park on their own. Wow. So there is this whole issue of independent mobility of, mm. of children and the fear. Of that has completely crime. transformed. I mean, I used to go to Which, the park all the time. Exactly. Central and Park. Sometimes <laughs> I, I give talks about that and I ask the audience, how many of you walked to school? And you see three quarters of the people raising their hands. We walk to school. How many of you allow your kids to walk to school? Almost no one. Oh, my God! And this is something, this independent mobility of children has been reduced so much in the U.S. and parts of other countries, too, because of fear of stranger danger, because of fear of traffic. So we drive our kids everywhere. That's right. And this is so bad for their health and for people's. I mean, actually, urban planners have a term that they call hypermobility. It mostly affects moms who have to drive their kids everywhere, and it affects Mm. kids. Mm. And so what I was finding out for these parks, that because the parents did not have the time, the kids would not go to the park, mostly so for parents of girls and boys. Mm. So you would find these. And so one of the, the parks that had more organized programs where you could drop your kid and there was a coach tended to have more use because the parents could drop their kid to be at AYSO practice with right. the college and all that. Mm. So there are all these things that you really need to think right. uh, and take into account if you really want to make the built environment friendly to different people, to kids, to older adults, to different right. users. Yeah, mm. well, that's um, so your solution to that, because it, it is a trend and there's a tr- that's a cultural trend is to provide a way for the kids to be a quote unquote supervised, at least at that age. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if I had been in the, your audience, I wouldn't have raised my hand about walking because I used to run to school. Because <laughs> ah, okay. I was so always I should, late. <laughs> next time I should say who walked around to school. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I would have to run. I still do that sometimes here. So, uh, you know, We've been talking about sort of urban and and population-based kinds of ideas to improve the health and well-being of different groups. What would you recommend, like looking at your own built environment? What would you recommend for people who want to be prepared for their aging life? Like what would you recommend as an ideal kind of space or town or? I would say more... um what planners call mixed-use environment, where you have both housing and also in very close proximity other services. Usually you tend to find these more in central city areas. And I was born in Athens and spent my first 25 years of my life there, but 90%, 95% of the housing stock in Athens are apartment buildings. And you can say this is doesn't have that great access to the outdoors, but then you can take the elevator, go downstairs, and you can go and buy a loaf of bread, and you can walk to dry cleaners, and you have all these amenities at at your feet. And so I think gerontologists tend to believe that mixed-use environments are better for 
older people rather than, you know, an area that is only residential, that you need your car to go to the supermarket or to the dry cleaners or to the bank. And we have started seeing, not to a very great extent, but we have started seeing people moving back to some of these higher density uh, communities, more mixed use environments. I think this might happen more. Partly has to do also with affordability and housing yes. affordability, and these are less expensive. But I, if I had an educated guess, I would say that we would see more people moving back to the center, neighborhoods closer to the center that provide more services and opportunities for older adults. I could see that also providing less isolation and more social, yes. you know, because you would know your coffee shop, you know, person or your grocery shop person. Absolutely. Switching gears a bit. Yes. Another part of your research focuses on the informal city. Yes. Yeah. And can you talk a bit about what informal urbanism is? Yes, sure. And informal urbanism is a t- activities that take place in in cities that are not necessarily regulated. There is a lot of work from economists about the informal economy. I have looked into activities like street vending or urban agriculture, community gardening that are more uh, happening from the bottom up rather than top down. And oftentimes... Probably better. (laughs) This is a very controversial topic. I definitely believe that uh, a number of these activities make cities more vibrant and more interesting for a lot of people. But of course, there are certain cases that may make life more dangerous, especially, you know, if there are absolutely no regulations, you buy something from the mm-hmm. street, you get sick. Right. Um, and and so we, my argument is that planners should really look into and accommodate some, try to accommodate some of these activities. In certain cases, try to make them healthier. In, in other cases, try to, and, and I'm talking about activities that are legal, not illicit. I'm not talking about drug exchanges and um, things like that, which are also informal. Yes. (laughs) And there has been for a long time an attitude that informality is only part of the developing world, but they're all around us. And there are some of the things that we find, like garage sales. That's Mm -hmm. an informal activity. Mm -hmm. They're not regulated and they serve some purpose. You know, you have stuff that you don't, you don't need. Right. Sustainable. Um, sustainable. And yeah. uh, look what happened with taco trucks, right? That's right. Yeah. You know? So I find this area, I found it, that's also a relatively recent topic. I don't know, five, six years ago. I thought that it is an interesting topic to study. It is definitely something that urban planners should not ignore or say or condemn necessarily, uh, or, you know, that it is not regulated. And you find quite a lot of variety. And another good example are, which I think it's great, what is happening now is that the granny flats. Uh, it was for many, many years not permitted to have neighborhoods that are single family, zoned for single family, to have a flat in the back, which may accommodate your parents. Or you can rent it for a lot of students living granny flats because it's less rent. And so now it is allowed all throughout uh, the state. Throughout, right? yes. Yes. Yeah. And for many, many years, it was not, it was not allowed. Yeah. It was happening, it was happening informally. That's right. Yeah. 
I think that that's going to be a big solution, especially in Los Angeles, where we have such an issue with housing. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is good in two ways. One is that it still keeps the character of some single-family neighborhoods because you don't want to start putting multifamily neighborhoods everywhere. So there are certain neighborhoods that are many single-family neighborhoods. They have a garage. You don't do any right. extensive uh, rebuilding. Right. And the second thing is affordability, that you it, it, it can double the housing stock. And That's right. when you have more supply of housing, rents are going to go down. That's right. Or, or stay stable, at least. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I feel that, I mean, I've seen it here at UCLA that a lot of junior faculty can't afford to buy a house. So yeah. it could be a way that you could afford yeah. to buy a house if someone could help, yeah. you know, rent your back house Absolutely. and help, you know, offset the mortgage. Actually, with UCLA, the people who were hired at UCLA in the 60s and 70s were living all around. I mean, yeah. they were living in uh, Westwood, uh, Pacific Palisades, even Beverly Hill and all that. And when, you know, I was hired and people after, you you had to go further, but still it was definitely within your means. But, you know, as you say now, it That's becomes right. even more difficult. That's right. Yeah. yeah. How does informal urbanism relate to creating more healthful cities? So informal urbanism is very diverse. There are many different activities and some right. can contribute, some some not, and some might even be dangerous mm-hmm. and need to be regulated. So, for example, street vending is an important, important informal activity. And by formalizing some of the taco trucks and kind of requesting and, and, and having certain rules about how you dispose your waste or that you have to have running water in the sink and all that, you really... You address health issues as well, that people are not going to get get sick, depending on what the taco truck sells. Sometimes it's very unhealthy, but it can sell also healthy stuff. So it may bring, you give more options to communities that the only thing they had were McDonald's. Right? That's right. So that's that's one way. Or also urban agriculture. My, I live in very urban part of Pasadena. My next door neighbor that has two young kids, she has hens. And she has fresh eggs, you yeah. know, for, uh, <laughs> and uh, again, this has started being regulated in the sense that you can only have five or six or something like that. that sounds like a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Don't you have an egg every day. <laughs> I, yeah. And it has to have a certain distance where they, the hens live to your neighbor's uh-huh. house and all that. So there are ways that formalization can help, other ways that may right. kill the informal activity completely. Right. The well, other one, other interesting thing about informal activities, is we talk about older adults and informal activity, some of the older adults, the 81, were Korean, and we found out that they had a much better mobility around the neighborhood because there is a Korean informal taxi service that everybody knows everybody and they call them to take them and and this is an informal economy because these guys do not have taxi permits but it is an extremely useful service for these older adults because that's the only they never call taxis they would call them they have their numbers Uh, that's interesting because there's a service that's been in in New York City forever, and they're so experienced with older people. And that's one of the things I find that's so important, that people need to be 
aware of the needs you know that they can't rush into a car and out of the car and yes you know yeah, and they have yeah. to hold the door to help yeah. them get into the car i mean there's all these steps that if you aren't aware or familiar yeah. so that's probably what these this community that you're just describing they also have that, that sort of sensitivity yeah to that population yeah most likely yeah, yeah. what is in your in your profession that you feel is pressing a yeah. pressing issue I, I i think that especially living in los angeles this whole issue of housing housing is a universal need and it is extremely important that people have shelter and you see that our kids generation students uh, we have so many homeless students right now. There are discussions about, you know, kind of accommodate them in parking lots. I mean, that's n- not the way to live in a city. And the fact that the rents are going so up and up and up. Actually, my most recent work just came out. This is the book on MIT Press on gentrification and displacement that I did with a colleague at, at Berkeley. And we see that sometimes even public investment Things that we think are good for cities like, you know, have more stations and transit and they raise up the land values and the rents are becoming even higher. And so how do you do less harm (laughs) through planning, but also how do you do good and especially in the area of housing? And the second area is you mentioned is, you know, maybe not as eminent as not having where to put your Uh, to have a shelter, but climate change. I mean, what are we going to do? Are our kids going to have a city that they can live in? And you see that some of that can be addressed, but it has to be addressed yesterday (laughs) and we're not doing it. And it's extremely disheartening to see, you know, EPA that, you know, is now, you know, what's happening with... Uh, how this the climate change, the current administration mm-hmm. is not is disregarding uh, and uh, how some of the work that has happened is devalued and not taken seriously and all that. So all these issues that relate to housing affordability and climate change, I think, are the two most important mm-hmm. issues that affect cities. And so I think your work, Anastasia, is incredible because what you're doing is creating an environment that will enhance mobility. And that is... I'm not creating it, but... You're helping to create it. But you're contributing to it. You know, it takes a university, right? It takes a village. It takes a city. It takes a city. Thankful that, you know, you you have brought this issue of health at the forefront at UCLA and that we are a healthy campus. And it is... I mean, communication is so important that people... And you have to kind of talking about the mindset, changing the mindsets that we've mentioned. Well, you have to be thinking about it at all times because it often, well, in my lifetime of, you know, professional lifetime of 30 years or over, you know, health and food and all this stuff always was considered the back burner. You know, it was low priority. And fortunately for us, our chancellor considers it one of the number one priorities. Yeah. But I'm very grateful to you and thank you for giving me your time. I'm honored that you did. Yeah, well, it's our honor to be able to interview you. Thank you for tuning in to Live Well Today. Today's podcast was brought to you by UCLA's Semel Healthy Campus Initiative Center. For more information on Dr. Anastasia Lukautu Sedaris's work and to listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at 
healthy.ucla.edu backslash livewellpodcasts.